remain standing and open your Bible to John chapter 3. Continuing a series through the Gospel of John, it'll be in verses 16 through 36 this morning. John 3, 16 through 36. I'm reading out of the English Standard Version. Hear the word of the Lord. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment, that light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John was also baptizing at Anon near Salim, because the water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he's baptizing and all are going to him. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Well, God, we do thank you for your word. Every time we open it, we're grateful, Lord, that you have spoken truth into a dark world, into a confusing world. Lord, that you've spoken clearly, that your word is true and it is living sharper than any two-edged sword and able to cut to the, the center of our being and discern the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. And you know what is on every heart here. You know every situation and circumstances, all the backgrounds that we bring to this moment right now and the ways that we need to hear you speak. And so, Lord, we do ask that you would speak your word by your spirit, through your servant, to your people, for your glory, for all of this is yours. And we humble ourselves before you. Lord, would you move me out of the way 
and use my voice as your instrument today to speak to hundreds of people in unique ways through one singular message. Do that as only you're able, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. And you may be seated. Well, this passage begins with what is certainly the most popular verse in the Bible. I, I, I mean, I haven't read surveys necessarily. I think uh, w- probably without question, the most popular verse and most frequently quoted verse in the Bible. And chances are, even if, even if you've never read the Bible and even if you don't have much of a background in church at all, um, chances are you've heard somebody quote John 3.16 along the way. It says that whoever believes in Jesus will have eternal life. But what does it mean to believe in Jesus? It clearly doesn't mean just to, have, to sort of give an intellectual assent to facts about him. Just to sort of believe in our heads that certain things are true about him, although it's essential that we believe certain things are true about him. As a matter of fact, we just confessed some of them in the Apostles' Creed. We believe uh, in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, right? Who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, and so forth. It is important that we believe certain things are true about him. Um, it certainly is not sufficient uh, because Satan and the demons know that those things are true about Jesus. And yet they're not saved by that knowledge or by belief in that sense. Believing in him means something more than that. The sort of saving faith that Jesus is speaking about, that God sent his son into the world to reveal that those who believed it and believed in him uh, would be saved. That sort of saving faith is more than just this sort of intellectual head knowledge of facts about Jesus. So believing we see here in this passage means having First, trust, second, humility, and third, obedience. And I might even say that belief in Jesus begins with a very simple trust. There people come to faith and don't know much except what they just heard a preacher or some individual say, or they wrote, read some scripture, and, and God just revealed the truth of it to them, and they they simply respond in, a, in an abandoned sort of trust to him. It begins right there. But then a, a faith that is genuine, a saving faith is followed on by humility and obedience. And so let's look first um, at the fact that believing in Jesus involves trust. That word uh, that whoever believes in him, that word itself really sort of carries a connotation of trust. Sometimes um, a different versions or forms of that word even are translated as faith, having confidence in, trusting in. The word itself means that, but really more than that, that's made clear by the context of, the, of, of this verse itself. The, the, if we read verses 16 through 18, what we, uh, what we hear quite clearly is that Jesus saves from something. And what is the something? It's from judgment. 
Jesus comes to save the world from judgment. Now, we don't like that chapter of the book in our modern contemporary setting, but that is very, very clearly uh, what it says in verses 16 through 18. The message of verses 16 through 18 is, hey, first of all, that God loved the world, not just the Jews, right? He's speaking to a Jewish audience, God's chosen people, the people through whom the Messiah would be revealed. But he, he loves not just the Jews, he loves the whole world. And he loved the world so much that he gave. Love gives. That is how love is demonstrated uh, and how Christian love is to be modeled and revealed even to the world. That love gives. He loved the world so much he gave his only son that the world might have eternal life. And it goes on to say, he didn't send his son to the world to condemn the world. Because, verse 18 says, the world's condemned already. Are you, do you have your Bible open in front of you? I would always encourage you to have your Bible open in front of you, because I promise it says that in your Bible too, if you've got a real one. It's a, he, he came that the world might be saved. He didn't come to condemn the world because the world's condemned already. Now, once again, we don't, we don't particularly like that message. People have a hard time with that um, in some cases because they just don't believe in God, but in other cases because they don't believe in a God like that. I don't like that kind of notion, which is kind of ironic it's really ironic because, you know, there are skeptics all the time. One of the big problems they have with God, one of the, the, the for them, the, the insurmountable problem they have with God is if God, if God is all powerful and he's all loving, why is there evil in the world? Why doesn't he do something about evil? And then when the response is in part, well, that's a difficult question, but the response is in part, he will do something about evil definitively. He's going to judge the world in righteousness. And then the response is, well, how could you believe in a wrathful God like that? Wait a minute, the very, the very God you insist ought to be, and when he does something about evil, you've got a problem with a God like that. And we would say, parenthetically, part of the problem people have with a God like that is they don't like the idea that they are in any sense evil themselves. That evil is, is always somewhere out there and it's somebody else's problem or whatever. But, but Jesus did not come to the world, into the world to condemn the world because the world uh, was already condemned. Judgment has been pronounced and it has been scheduled. He has appointed a day on which to judge the world in righteousness. That's what the scripture says. It's scheduled. And, and now, you don't have it on your calendar and I don't either. And anybody tells you what the date is, you can surely mark that one off. That is not it, but it's, it's scheduled. So think, think of as a sort of illustration of this, it's not a perfect illustration, but think of the story of the destruction of Sodom that's recorded in Genesis chapter 19. Uh, verses 13 through 16, I'd refer to particularly, but it's really that whole chapter that talks about the judgment of Sodom, a wicked city. And there's a, people are crying out to God about the, the, the extent of the wickedness of that city. It's just thoroughly, pervasively wicked. And uh, so two angels who appear as men have come down to uh, 
essentially validate, uh, to, to personally bear witness to the fact that it's just as evil as people uh, say it is. But in verses six, 13 through 16 there, it says they tell Lot, Lot's family um, that judgment has been uh, declared, essentially. They declare to Lot and his family, um, this city is going to be destroyed. We're going to destroy this city because of its wickedness. And then they tell Lot he should bring his family out of the city. And Lot and his family hesitate a little bit at that. And then it says, so the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him. They seized him by his hand and brought them out and set them outside of the city. That's a picture of salvation. Scheduled judgment and that by his mercy, he comes and not only declares that judgment is coming, that they can be saved from the judgment, but then even reaches and takes them by the hand and leads them out of the city. Now that's, as I said, not a perfect analogy. It doesn't fit uh, Jesus in a, in a number of ways, but it's a helpful one because um, as I said, in his case, he didn't come to destroy the world or condemn it because condemnation had already been pronounced. So, but in, a, in essence, he says to the world, there's a way out. There, there's a way to safety. Condemnation is sure. Judgment has been scheduled. But there's a way to be saved from that judgment, and I am the way. You're going to have to trust me. Follow me. You think about in, re in real life, if you were... Uh, if you had enemy soldiers moving into your city and somebody says in the middle of night, uh, quick, I know a way out, come with me. Well, whether you go or not is your decision, but you're gonna have to trust that that person knows a way out, that they can be trusted or what, because you don't know. But believing that person means trusting that person. And that, that really is, to, to, in its essence, to believe in Jesus as Savior means to trust him as Savior. To trust entirely. Our whole life and eternity is rested in him alone for salvation. Believing means trust. Second, believing means uh, having humility. And John the Baptist really exemplifies this. It's it's. Interesting that this is sort of tucked um, in here where it is, but John the Baptist exemplifies it in verses 25 and following that we read here. Some of John's disciples come to him with what seems to be a little bit of a concern. I don't know if you picked up on that as we're reading it or that if you hear it that way, but they basically say, hey, you know when we were across the Jordan, there was that guy that came to you and like you baptized him and you testified that behold the Lamb of God. Well, you remember that guy? Well, he's baptizing now and everybody's going to him. It almost has that sort of a, a, a tone of concern about the fact that people who have been coming to John to be baptized, people who have been following John the Baptist are now going to Jesus. And part of the reason I think it's right to hear that sort of tone in their voice is because of the way John the Baptist replies to them. It's, it's like they're saying, he's taken our people away. Their pride is touched a little bit 
that people are following somebody else besides their God. But John says, I told you already, I'm not the Christ. I'm not the guy. Now, just as the friend of the bridegroom rejoices for the groom when he has his bride, so John was now rejoicing that Jesus is receiving those who belong to him. It's a cause for rejoicing. It is, it's the reason he came was to point to Jesus, to point people to Jesus. The fact that they're going to him is a good thing as far as John's concerned. And then he makes this powerful statement in verse 30. He must increase, but I must decrease. If you're looking for a verse to put on your mirror in the bathroom or to put on your refrigerator with a magnet or to or, or to paint in fancy letters all above the door before you walk out. That wouldn't be a bad one. He must increase, but I must decrease. It's really a profound summary statement, a really concise one of what's required for everyone who believes in Jesus. That we don't just... Uh, once upon a time, do a sort of a transaction with Jesus where we say we believe in him and then, uh, you know, that's sort of the beginning and the end of the story or whatever, but that we, we follow him and he increasingly becomes more and we increasingly become less. And there are, like John's disciples, there are always uh, some ways in which our sense of identity and self-worth worth are wrapped up in um, the work that we do, the way, the, what other people think of us, the regard people have for us, uh, the things that they do or say that make us feel valued and dignified and, and, uh, and so on. If you, were to, if you were to stop and think about that right now, and if you were to be able to think clearly and honestly, you'd probably put your finger on some things where your sense of self-worth comes from what other people say your worth is, the way other people regard you, talk about you, and so forth. And again, there seems to be a little glimpse of that in John the Baptist disciples that they're uh, followers of him and they're losing some people now to Jesus and, and it, it sort of puts their own identity on the, on the table along the chopping block a little bit. But those very things that other people do or say that that make us feel more valued or dignified and so on are the very things that we have to surrender to Jesus in order to follow him. All of our sense of self-worth and all the ways that we prioritize our life and decisions to sort of amplify our self-worth, those are the very things we have to surrender to Jesus in order to follow him. We gotta make more of him and less of ourselves. And so it, it, believing in Jesus uh, involves having humility. And it's not only humility toward Jesus. It's easy to say, it's easy to say, oh yeah, he's great and I'm not. I mean, like that, that's, that's, that itself is actually pretty easy to say. It's much harder to demonstrate humility uh, in relationship to other people. If Jesus is better than me, but I'm better than everybody else. That's the way we live and talk very often. But, but following him, believing him means having humility. And then third, 
obedience. Here's a, I think a, a simple, another simple and concise statement you could even write down in the margin of your Bible. Believing means obeying. Believing means obeying. And this shows up in a couple of ways here in this passage, most explicitly in verse 36. Look again there now, and depending on what translation you have, it's going to uh, read maybe a little bit differently. But verse 36, 36 says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. If you have the New American Standard, it also says whoever does not obey him. I think the NIV says um, whoever rejects him or something of that sort. I actually don't remember. Uh, the King James, New King James says believe, I think, in both places. Whoever believes in, in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not believe does not have eternal life. But it, he actually uses two different Greek words here. Whoever believes uh, has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. Now, let, let's unpack that just a minute because what's interesting is look back at verse 18 because you see a real similar contrast made there, right? Whoever believes in him is not condemned. Whoever does not believe is condemned already. You see that? He's making a contrast between those who believe and those who do not believe. He's doing the same thing in verse 36. He who believes has eternal life. He who does not believe does not have life. But in that second clause there, he says, whoever does not obey. Believing means obeying. By the way, it's, not, it's, it's an acceptable translation to translate that as believe. That's not wrong that you, you see that in some translations. But the point is, the, the very notion of believing contains within itself obedience. The word he actually uses there that's translated in the ESV, does not obey, means to refuse to go along with, to refuse to follow, or to be disobedient. We might, we might think of this as this might be most helpful to think of in relationship to somebody who is um, a, a ruler or an authority. Believing in that person's authority means going along with, following it, being obedient to. Uh, an illustration of this, I think, that might be helpful there are actually a number of them that might be helpful, but uh, I think about the Von Trapp family that was um, you know, depicted in the, the Sound of Music. Many of you saw that, that musical or that movie um, about the Von Trapp family singers. It's based on a true story of that family. They fled Austria for America after uh, the Nazis annexed Austria, essentially. And the father... Georg was a wealthy and prominent man who had been a decorated uh, naval officer in uh, Austria. And after the, the Nazis came to power, he was offered a commission in the Navy once again, in this sort of unified kingdom. He was offered a commission in the Navy. He declined it. Um, he... Uh, on one occasion, he and the family, because they had become quite famous as singers, they were asked to sing for Hitler's birthday. He refused. 
And then on another occasion, he was told to fly the Nazi flag from his property, from his house. Once again, he refused. And at that time, decided, you know, you can only refuse the Nazis so many times before it's time to leave the country. And so they did. And of course, that's uh, what is dramatized in the story. But he did not believe their ideology. He did not accept their authority. He didn't, go, he didn't go along with it. You see, he refused to go along with it. He refused to follow them. He refused to obey because he didn't believe all that they valued and believe in all that they were. That's a picture of what it means to disobey because you disbelieve. Believing in, believe in that Jesus is the Son of God who's been given all authority under heaven and earth demands that we submit to that authority. Do you get that? Because see, we, we don't have a hard time at all saying such things. We just have a hard time doing them. But to, say, to actually say we believe that Jesus is who he says he is, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, that all authority under heaven and earth has been given to him. To believe that, that he has that kind of authority, demands that we submit to that authority, that we obey we go along with what he says. We follow where he leads. We obey his teaching. In fact, verse 21 um, says that those who believe the truth do the truth. It's an interesting kind of phrase. It's almost a little bit awkward. Whoever does what is true comes to the light. Whoever does the truth. We talk all the time about believing the truth or speaking the truth. But he says, whoever does the truth comes to the light. Believing means obeying. Jesus said, in fact, it'll be uh, recorded for us later in this gospel. We'll come across it. If you love me, keep my commandments. And John will say later in his epistles in 1 John chapter 2, verses 4 through 6, he says, whoever says I know him but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. Let me read that one again and I'll keep on going to verses five and six. Whoever says I know him, quote, I know Jesus, but doesn't keep his commandments is a liar. Now, I didn't say that, John did. I'm just reading it for you. The truth is not in him, but whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this, we may know that we are in him. You ready? By this, you may know that you are in Christ. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Here's the way we know when we're in him. The way that he walked is the way that we walk. That doesn't mean we're perfect the way he's perfect. Let me just take the pressure off you right now. And me too. It just means that he declared that all that the world uh, regards as true and valuable, the whole way 
of self-advancement, of self-promotion, self-gratification, of uh, achieving power and possession and pride and all those kinds of things. The way of the world uh, is not the way of truth. Jesus said there's a different way. I am the way uh, and walk the way that I walk. We ought also to walk the way that he walked if we obey him. And so what is that? Well, there's a, there's a whole New Testament of that. There's, uh, there's four whole gospels that tell more about that. But here are some of the things that Jesus said about the way that, we, that he walked and the way we are to walk. He said, love one another. This is my commandment, that you love one another. That's easier than the next one. Love your enemies. Bless those who persecute you. Now, we could stop right there and have prayer time. You know, because, because our whole public discourse right now, I mean, is, def is defined not necessarily by people who persecute us, but just people who irk us to no end. And we are all undone. And the last thing we do a lot of times is bless them. Bless them. Uh, he, Jesus said, don't retaliate. This is the way. This is the way that he walked, that we are to walk. What he commanded. Don't retaliate. He says, if someone... Forces you to go one mile, you go two, right? If, so, if someone takes your cloak, give him your coat also. And on and on. You could go read it more in depth yourself. He says, don't judge others. Do to others what you'd have them do to you. Now that's a short list of a much longer list of the way Jesus said for us to live and walk, right? But if we believe in him, it means we will do the truth. Not only say we affirm the truth and not only tell the truth and tell others the truth of what they're supposed to do, but we will do the truth. Believing means Obeying. And, and this is still good news, by the way. Because it, even in all the ways for, for his people, born again by his spirit who belong to him, all the ways it's revealed to us that we don't obey him adequately, the, all the ways that we fail to do so time and time again and so on and so forth, those are revealed to us that we might confess our sins knowing he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He didn't come to condemn the world and for those who belong to him, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is no condemnation. There is forgiveness, there is cleansing, there is purification to be found in him. But all down through the centuries, there have been and there remain people who, who want to claim to believe that certain things are true about him, to just affirm certain beliefs, and yet they're 
uh, they, they don't really trust. They haven't really humbled themselves. And they haven't given themselves over to obeying the way that he has called uh, them to live and to walk. That's the invitation that he offers. And that's the command that he offers. And so even as we conclude, th there's an invitation there for, uh, for those who have never trusted in Jesus. Who've heard about him, they believed he's good, uh, followed certain elements of what he taught, but have never really trusted him for salvation, have not put their entire, all the eggs in that basket. That their whole eternal security, uh, salvation from judgment of this world, all of that, they've never really trusted him. And that's the invitation and the starting point even for somebody, simply to trust in Jesus. I believe he is who the Bible says he is, that he did what the Bible says he's done. That by his sacrifice and his victory over sin and death, I might be saved from my sin and from my death. But the invitation to those who have already decided to follow him, the invitation is contained in the command. <laughs> the invitation is walk in humility and walk in obedience. What are the ways he would reveal by his spirit even now um, that you really haven't given yourself to a life of obedience to him? What is, uh, what is it in the way of loving one another, loving our enemies, uh, living with uh, a gracious posture even toward people who despise us? That's hard, isn't it? He didn't say it was easy, but that's actually the way of life. Our, our uh, judgment and critical spirit and so on. It would be an interesting little self-examination just to, just to pause and consider how much time you and I spend evaluating other people. Like if we, if we just took that one issue, that one issue, and, and we just examine how often do we, how much time do we spend evaluating other people in a critical way, finding some fault. Our, our eyes are just always attuned to noticing the wrong in other people. There's a judgment and a critical spirit more active than we would care to imagine. It's those sort of things that we have to surrender once again to him. That he might increase, that we might decrease. Because we believe him, that we, that we obey, that we follow along with his way of, of living. That we go along with it, we follow him, that we obey through and through. Well, let's pray. Well, God, we thank you for this singular truth that literally has changed human history. That you so loved the world that you gave to a people, a whole population on a whole planet, you gave to a population of people who want to take. You gave 
to us, your son, when we are always inclined to take for ourselves, to seek self-promotion, self-exaltation, to accumulate material things of this world, to, uh, to acquire power and privilege, uh, to in some way uh, lord ourselves over others, even as there are others lording themselves over us, Lord. It is, it is our natural inclination to pursue power and possessions and pride. And you loved us so much that you gave your only son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. Lord, would you stir our hearts that by your spirit we might be awakened first to believe that that is true, that we would respond and trust and then that our trust would be followed on by a lifetime of humility and obedience. Lord, make us the kind of people that as the world gets darker, that you shine more brightly in us. As the light who came into the world, Lord, would you make us people of light as well. And so we pray you would have our hearts even now to respond to you according to your word in Jesus' name.